0: Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World, a podcast dedicated to faithful parents navigating their families through a stormy culture. Welcome back to Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World. I'm your host, Paul Osborne. Today I want to tackle the question, how did the culture become so angry? Has there ever been a time where you've seen more reports of people being kicked off of planes or fights at ball games and school board meetings? I don't know. It's hard to tell, perhaps. But I think we need to get a pace, get a feel for how the culture got this angry. And probably the easiest place to start is the pace of life. I think if there's one thing that there's some common agreement on is that the pace of our society is moving at an incredible speed. Now, let me update a quote from the great Bill Moyers. Uh, It would go something like this. Americans know more about what has happened in the last 20 minutes than the last 200 years. This hyper obsession on the now, thanks to social media and instant news, it has really ripped reflection from our minds. And these new life patterns, these rapid rhythms, drive our focus to the immediate and they create some blind spots that leave families missing what I would say is the historic understanding of body, mind, and spirit. There's a great Kenny Chesney song called Rich and Miserable, and it describes the impulsive, indulgent culture of America that's always in a hurry and always wanting more. And this momentum of of the outward flow of the cultural traffic, it just pushes us to move faster and faster. And we tend to ignore the care of our soul. See, the speed limits are going up as the guardrails are coming down. And it's, it's a high-risk road that can't help us from having a certain degree of anxiety in our family because we're moving at such incredible speed while the lines of virtue and morality are being repainted. See, these fast-changing boundaries that go with this culture offer no reflection. It's It's contributing to what I think is the angry society. And even when we see the wrecks, even when we see the destruction, forget about trying to limit our speed. We just keep pressing on because the technology allows us to go faster and faster. See, this technology that we have today that was supposed to save us time actually Takes away our time because it causes us to make more time transactions. So instead of conforming the technology to your life, we tend to conform our life to the technology. And we continue to strip reflection from our life, and the frustration builds. And then we enter into these blame games, right? Where we sort of surround ourselves with some sort of media in which we're blaming politicians and we're pointing out other circles of blame in our society. The reality is that the human soul, particularly a collection of souls called the family, it just it not designed to live at this kind of pace. It is like driving the family vehicle on a Grand Prix track at Formula One speed. The car isn't built for that. And we forget that we are built by a God who invites us to walk in the Spirit, who leads us by still waters, and invites us to come have fellowship and receive his gift of rest. It just doesn't line up with our speed society. And so we miss the spiritual exits, and it causes us to enter into this kind of restlessness, which brings me to a book that I comment about quite a bit, but I'll share a few things. The book is called Why We Are Restless. It is written by Benjamin Story and his wife, Jenna Silver Story. There are two Furman professors who try to answer this question. Uh, Just the insight of the summary that you could see when you go and search on this book on uh, Amazon or, or any bookstore, it says, we live in an age of unprecedented prosperity, yet everywhere we see signs that our pursuit of happiness has proven fruitless, dissatisfied, We seek change for the sake of change, even if it means undermining the foundations of our common life. That's a powerful summary of the book, but it's interesting that these professors take a deep dive into 16th century France, and particularly the philosophers of that day, and over several of them, Montaigne, Rousseau, Descartes. But in particular, one that's interesting is Montaigne, because he has this pursuit of joy called imminent contentment, imminent meaning what's immediate, what's right about to happen. And his pursuit of this, because he's wealthy enough, frankly, to do it, is that he's going to chase pleasure and he's not going to let any constraints of the church, of of eternity, of faith get in his way. And there's an interesting debate in this book that goes on between him and Blaine Pascal who is the Christian apologist and a mathematician of his day. And Pascal's saying in this book and in other places, hey, this sort of chasing of immediate joy, this imminent contentment theory, it's really not going to work when you can't just remove considerations of the faith, of Christianity, of morals, of constraint, or even of eternity. Essentially, society has had these ideas for a very long time, and we picked up on them even more so in the 1960s. And this is where I want to fast forward to the French beliefs. I would say, obviously, they started in the 16th century, and we had a balancing act. A little bit of it pops up in the Roaring Twenties, but you know, you go through the Great Depression, World War II, uh, some of the wars afterwards. There just wasn't the the, the money and the the resources. But you get to the late 60s, and you've got this middle class, and suddenly you get the uh, critical mass for this morality. And then these leaders of the late 60s, they start dismissing Christianity as well, and God is unnecessary. And they intensify this with all sorts of seeking of pleasure, be it unconstrained sex or uh, tripping out on drugs, And then you look at the next 50 years of where you are right now from that period to today, and you've added a technology to power this lifestyle that has never been before imagined. It wasn't imagined in the 60s, and it certainly wasn't imagined in the 16th century. Now you hear of a new kingdom in which everyone is king, and we now are living in the outcome of what that is. See, the new mores that were established and suggested kind of subtract societal constraint. It it begins to limit our lens, and this liberating subtraction of boundaries has led to the societal confusion that we now see is boiling over. Because eventually, somebody's rights are going to collide with someone else's rights. See, the extreme removal of boundaries creates a land of unreconcilable battles. You try to live by the supremacy of personal rights alone, which is what we seem to be trying to do, and all rights start to become destroyed. We're currently asking the question, do women have a right to their own athletic competition, or do individuals with a personal definition of womanhood have a right to participate? So you change the language, you eliminate the rules, you rip away tradition, and it begins to leave you with nothing being really right or fair, and it also generates quite a bit of the anger. It's interesting, there is a recent article in the Wall Street Journal, Bart Swain, who is one of my favorite uh, editorialists on the Wall Street Journal, as well as a brilliant writer, but he did a book review of a book called The Individualist, which is a history of libertarianism. And it's quite an interesting review that he has, but I'll try to summarize it. He talks about this concern for individual rights and this disdain for institutional, what what he called coercion. And it gets to the point where uh, it ignores the rights of communities to govern themselves. Personal freedom gets so high That all of a sudden, a city or a community or a state, it can't create its own governing rules if one or two individuals go foul foul and deny the right to govern. It's like officiating a game, football, basketball, whatever, soccer, and the officials call a foul. And if one player or one fan or one coach complains, they were to overrule the call. The the liberty to play the game would be gone, and this is where we seem to be heading. This only authority of individual rights has taken us to a place that was never really intended. It's a balancing issue, and we are way out of balance. I think a philosophy that a lot of young people have been pulled into over the years, it, it both comes from the libertarian as well as the liberal a view of life, but it starts with something like, hey, what happens in my bedroom is my business. And then what I decide in regards to my morality and what I think is right and wrong, it's really my business. I mean, keep the government out of it, keep your nebby church people out of my life, separation of church and state. And you've been taught this kind of thing without any consideration, really, of how society is supposed to function. Now, I'm not here to talk about polit- politics or government or any of those things, but the real question is, how do we keep our kids joyful in a culture that has bought into such an extreme, it's completely out of balance? And I'll share with you a story that happened over the summer that I think helps explain it and how we actually avoid this kind of out of balance that leading to anger or philosophy. My wife and I take our two oldest grandchildren camping over the summer. We are on a campsite that looks down on a lake, and in Texas, the lakes are murky, they're muddy, and people drown in them every year. So we have this boundaries conversation, really even before we leave, but certainly again when we get there, that says, okay, this is, you know, where we're going to stay close to one another, if we got on the rafts, everybody's got to have a life jacket, even I have to have one." And this goes really well the first day. Now, the second day, you know, these life jackets, they're a little uncomfortable, even though they're kids' life jackets. And so we say, all right, we will go to the dollar store right up to outside the park. We'll get a couple of these arm floaties. And so if you kind of want to splash around, we still got to stay close, but we'll do it that way. And so at the end of the day, now the everything's off, the life jackets, the arm floaties, I'm heading to the raft up the hill. To get back to the campsite. My wife's still in the water and my granddaughter starts swimming along the shoreline away from the boundary. And we're yelling, get back, get back. And my wife's still in the water and she's yelling. And finally we get her attention and she's walking towards her. And, you know, we get her back up and we have to have a conversation about boundaries. And this is what we agreed to. Now, she's not a kid that's defiant and have my own way, and she's just not that person. This is not normal character for her. But what happened that day, her confidence in her swimming had grown over the past couple of summers. They have a pool in their neighborhood community and some swimming lessons, and she's gotten better at swimming. And there was imminent contentment. I'm having fun. I'm joyful. It's right in front of me. It's immediate and we lose sight of the boundary, and she lost sight of the boundary. And so you'll hear me say this, that the best of parents are parents at best. And what our kids need as they're on the lake of this culture, this murky culture that you're in, that's removing all kinds of boundaries, what they need is an inherent and intrinsic something inside the soul that's connected to the heart that is called the Holy Spirit. When Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand, he asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit, which came on Pentecost. And it is he reminds us of boundaries that kind of gives us these, these spiritual tweaks in our soul and in our heart. And that's what guides our kids. Yes, we still have to give them guidance as parents, but we have something that gives them even greater guidance, and that is the Holy Spirit. The rush that we get into to give our kids the best education, the best experiences, to be on great teams, to sit under wonderful coaches, it's all wonderful stuff. But as they're moving through this murky culture, this dangerous, self-absorbed, no-boundaries lifestyle. They need something more, and that is the Holy Spirit that comes from God himself, which is God himself. See, in our tradition, in the the Lutheran tradition, when when an infant is baptized, we trust God to infuse grace and the Holy Spirit into the soul of of, of that child, into the heart of that child. Now this may not be your tradition of baptism, but the need to ask God to fill our kids with the Holy Spirit is something we cannot decouple from trying to give them wisdom and offer them the best life that we can. The Holy Spirit is critical in our children's joy and remaining joyful In this angry culture. This gift comes in the kingdom of God and living in the kingdom of God. Something we'll explore next time and in the podcast ahead. The ultimate battle for the heart and soul is a fight for identity. Our King invites our kids to know who they are, what to believe, and where they belong. Until next time, let's remember the words, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.